That is one of the uh, iconic scenes from the Star Wars trilogy, The Good Ones. <laughs> For those of you that are Star Wars fans, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you that don't, you're not geeks. Um, today, by the way, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at The Garden. We're continuing with our series in Matthew. And today we're looking at Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. And I've entitled this sermon, Return of the Jedi. <clears throat> and uh, you see this little mem I created. Is it meme or mem picture I created? Join me, eat this fruit, and we can live forever. Okay, but only if Eve eats first. Um, I'm going to show you. Do you guys remember in the story about how Luke was the second attempt by the force to bring balance? Because Darth Vader was the first one. He had those metachlorines in his body, and he was the guy that was supposed to bring balance to the force. And then he gave in to temptation. And then Luke came along, and Luke didn't give in, so Luke brought balance to the force. It's kind of it's exactly like what happened between the first Adam and what the Scripture calls the second Adam. So Luke and Vader are like Adam and Jesus. And so that's kind of the idea we're going to look at. And so far, I want to make sure you understand that we've seen Matthew kind of be a summary so far, and it's kind of been like this. Matthew has been developing this list of evidence to prove to Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised by the prophets, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, the Messiah that was supposed to come and take away sins and be the shepherd, while many Jews were looking for a military leader, a new king to come and destroy the Roman Empire and bring back power and prestige to the throne of David, what Matthew does is lays out a very clear case. Look, the Old Testament is very clear that this is the Messiah. And so, if you will, what the Old Testament did and what we did for the past several months is we looked at the Old Testament stories that were leaving clues as to who Jesus would be, but in Matthew, he's showing evidence as to who Jesus really is. So now, for the first part of this series we started last, you know, last fall, it was looking forward. This is a hint. This is a picture. And we went through all the ideas between Moses and Noah, about all these stories were pictures images and clues of what Messiah would be. And now at Matthew, we're looking back and Matthew's saying, remember that picture? This proves Jesus. Remember that picture? This proves Jesus. And he's gone through and he talked about how Jesus was likened to Moses when the children of Israel were in Egypt. He's likened him to Noah. He's likened him to the, and tied him to the Babylonian captivity. And he tied him to the exodus from Egypt and all those things. And then last week we saw how he tied him to Jehovah with the all caps. By the way, right after the sermon yesterday, some of you guys are so funny. I got nine texts in all caps. <laughs> Great sermon. Good sermon. Good job. And the ones that didn't think it was a good sermon just said, Hi, Pastor Joe, in all caps, I guess, because there were some that just said... But anyway, I really appreciate that. But what Matthew did last week, what we talked about, was he explained, Jesus says, I am, which is another phrase for Jehovah. And I explained how the word Lord, and Megan did a great job of making sure in the slides today, I don't know if you noticed, wherever the word Lord was, it was in all caps. So we're kind of training your mind to think that way. <clears throat> well, today, he talks about Adam. Not specifically, but indirectly. And so let's first look at that temptation of Adam. You guys remember the story? And the first one is in Genesis 3, 1 to 5. I'll just read it. Now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And God said, you should, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of that tree in the middle of the garden and don't touch it or else you will die. But the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be just like God knowing good and evil. And then we saw later on, after the fall and after God confronts Adam and after God first tries to blame Eve, which obviously was wrong because Adam should have been protecting Eve from the serpent. It wasn't Eve's fault, it was Adam's fault. But then in Genesis 3.15, God makes an interesting prediction. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of the second Adam, of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop for a minute. Can you imagine the guilt that Adam must have carried the rest of his life? I mean, sometimes we go through traumatic experiences in our life, right? Adam had this job. Adam, your job is to be the head of the human race. Your job is to be the guardian. You're the king of the world, literally, Adam. You're in charge. You are the man. You name every plant. You name every animal. You do everything is set up for you to succeed. You are the man. All you have to do is don't eat that tree. That's the key. As a matter of fact, a case can be made, even though Eve ate the tree, if Adam had not eaten it, he still could have kept his role. But he gave in to the temptation. And can you imagine once God came in and said, because of that, you're going to have to work and toil. The world is not going to be the same anymore. It's going to be hardship. Your wife will have pain in childbirth. There's thorns. They're going to grow up in the Garden of Eden. You're going to be cast out, and you're going to have a hard life. And he lived almost a thousand years, and he had to carry this guilt. Can you imagine what he must have been feeling like the rest of his life? That's kind of interesting. Because he was the figurative head of the human race. His job was to resist temptation, and he couldn't do it. Well, let's look at the temptation of Adam number two. I'm going to read you the passage from Matthew 4, 1 to 11. It's our main text today. Just kind of follow along with me. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can look it up, uh, or you can just follow along and listen to me. You don't, I'll, just, I'll try to do a good job reading. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And this is kind of looking like the Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker temptation right here. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came. And ministered to Jesus. 
So let me give you a breakdown here, just kind of break it down for you real quick of what this all means. And with later on with scripture, we're going to prove it. <clears throat> First of all, Adam number one and Adam number two were both the head of mankind. Both of them had the same role. Your role is the well-being of all human race. That's your job. In both temptations, what the enemy does, first in the form of a certain a serpent, and then Satan in, you know, with Jesus in the wilderness, in both places he takes truth and he twists it, and that's his tool. He twists the truth. Just go ahead and eat it. You're not going to die. Look, Jesus, God says he's not going to let the angels you know, let you get hurt. So just, if you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Prove you're the Son of God. Jesus says, I don't have to prove it. And in both situations, what the enemy does is he takes truth and he twists it. Guys, listen, this is very important. This is the number one way that the enemy gets into your life. This is why it's so important for you to understand God's word. It's so important for you to revere God's word. It's so important for you to understand that God's word is authority. But it's also important for you to understand and know it. It's what we try to do to help here in the garden and what you should be doing in your study. Because if you don't understand truth, there are a lot of cults out there who twist it. There are a lot of people out there that take the word of God and they twist it and they deceive you and they trick you and they cause pain and they cause guilt because the word of God is twisted. And that's the tool that the enemy used in both temptations of Adam number one and Adam number two. <clears throat> now the first Adam faced temptation and failed. He failed in perfect circumstances. He wasn't in the wilderness he was in the Garden of Eden. He had everything he needed. He was comfortable, and the Scripture says he even walked, with, walked and talked with God every day in the cool of the evening. And he failed, and as a result, he failed all of mankind, and he failed all of animals, all of the birds, all the trees. Everything began to face death and pain and chaos and destruction because of the curse of sin. But the second Adam faces temptation and succeeds in the wilderness. And basically what happens here is he succeeds where Adam failed because why? He is Jehovah. You see, Jehovah God is not susceptible to twisting of truth. Jehovah God is truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some translations, like the New World Translation I pointed out last week, say the Word was a God. Terrible translation, a lie, an example of Satan twisting truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the reason Jesus... The second Adam was able to resist temptation is because he is Jehovah, he is truth. Now the failure of Adam brought sin and death to the human race, but the power of the God-man, Theanthropos, which we taught you last week, when he was facing temptation, he opened the door for redemption from that very same sin and death that the first Adam brought upon the human race. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, it explains it perfectly. Re watch this. You're going to love this. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, see, even Scripture says there are two Adams, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is born first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So that's the first evidence to you to show you that the Scripture teaches this concept that there are two Adams. There's the first Adam who failed and the second Adam who succeeds. Watch this. There's really more cool stuff coming. <clears throat> Look at this one in Romans chapter 5, 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a picture of the one to come. Who is the one to come? You see that? Jesus. Adam was a picture. And how was he a picture? Not by his righteousness, but by his role, by his job. His job was a picture of the one to come. But he failed in his job. Why? Because he was a man made from dust, like us. And then there's another one in Romans. I, I love Romans. It's such a great book. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? Second Adam, or first Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Let me point a couple things out first. The idea of one act of righteousness is not talking about one specific moment in time. What that really is talking about is one life of righteousness leading to the act of the cross. And so that one act of righteousness wasn't just the wilderness. You understand that? The wilderness was just like a parenthetical statement in the act of righteousness. The wilderness was part of that one act of righteousness. The full picture of the act of righteousness of the second Adam, of Jehovah God, of Jesus, of Theanthropos, the whole picture was his life. From the birth to the death to the resurrection, that was the act of righteousness that brought righteousness to all mankind who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So you see what the scripture says here? By one Adam's fall, first Adam number one, all men were condemned, but by one Adam's righteousness, the second Adam, all men are given a chance for redemption, for hope, for restoration. Now understand, in order for Jesus to be our Savior, it was necessary for Jesus to live a life of complete obedience to God. His sinlessness, which by the way is more of a miracle than his resurrection, do you understand that? His sinlessness was absolutely necessary for our salvation in the wilderness and in the rest of his life. Jesus was tempted just like Adam, but did not sin. And that's important, right? Because listen, had Jesus sinned, he could not die for us. He would be subject to death. For the price for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 
There, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The scripture makes it very clear all throughout Romans and other places that the cost for sin is death, and the only way to escape it is to have a death that is not for its own sin, but for the sin of others. Therefore, by one act of righteousness, redemption comes to many. This is the kind of part of the sermon where I understand, I want you to understand, I know it gets wonky, but you got to really follow me here. But this was not the real reason for the temptation of Jesus. At least not the real reason for Matthew putting the story in there. There's a better reason. Do you understand? It wasn't some elaborate scene designed to give you an object lesson on how to resist temptation. That's the wrong application of Jesus in the wilderness. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, okay, I'm not going to I'm going to tell you for me. If I were in the wilderness, I wouldn't even make it to the 40 days. I'd be screaming out, I'll do whatever you want. Just give me a glass of water and a pizza. I would not last. A matter of fact, I don't think I'd last. I, I watched this show, what is it, Naked and Afraid? Have you seen that? I can't even take my shirt off at the beach. I can't imagine 40 days in the wilderness. Like, it's scary. So this wasn't some elaborate scene that God thought up. I'm going to teach my sheep how to avoid temptation. Follow the example of Jesus. Yeah, good luck with that. If Adam couldn't do it in the Garden of Eden, when he walked and talked with God every day, and he knew truth, and everything was perfect, and there was no other sin in the world, and there was no evil world system working against him, and he fell, who do you think you are to think that you can do any better than the first Adam? who, by the way, was 15 times smarter than you. Some of you have a hard time remembering phone numbers. He named all the animals. Do you understand the difference? He was a superhuman. <clears throat> In fact, if that were the case, and this story was about resist resisting temptation, it would depress me more because I could never, ever come close to measuring up to that performance that Jesus turned in in the wilderness. No, no, the scripture teaches us the real reason for this story. You ready? It was so Jesus could have compassion for us. Just like the compassion, the scripture says, when he saw the multitude and he said he had compassion upon them because they were without a shepherd and he fed them. Do you know why Jesus was filled with compassion throughout his earthly ministry because he knew what it felt like to live in this wretched, sinful, decaying, fallen, death-ridden, swirling, sucking, eddy of despair we call a world. And the only reason, guys, you know, some people have this question, well, if there was a real God, how could he let some of this bad stuff happen? No, that's the wrong question. And we've taught you this before. The real question is, the world is so bad, it's amazing. God breaks through and lets good things happen. That's how you got to think about it. Look at some passages in Hebrews. Watch this one. For surely it is not angels that help, 
but the helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are currently being tempted. Isn't that great? Do you understand? It wasn't that just Theanthropos came to earth, he didn't sin, and then he died. No, Theanthropos came to earth, he learned compassion. He learned sympathy. He learned pain. He learned anguish. And he knew exactly what needed to be done for us. And it served in many ways as a motivating factor for him to be willing to die on the cross. Look, as bad as this experience of crucifixion is going to be, I know these poor sheep have no other hope but me. I'm the return of the Jedi. I got another passage in Hebrews. If we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Aren't these passages amazingly encouraging? I mean, think about what Hebrews is teaching us here. i got a couple more passages I'm going to share with you, and then some closing thoughts that I think are really going to be encouraging for you. Look at this passage in Lamentations. The very nature of the name of the book means weeping. I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know why the, the mercies of the Lord never end? Because he knows without that we are hopeless. He knows because he understands our plight. He understands the weight of the world that is on our shoulders when it comes to temptation. He understands all that. And because of that, he says, I have to send wave of mercy and grace after wave of mercy and grace after wave of mercy and grace because I know that they're up against an impossible task of staying sinless. Look what John writes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So this message is not telling you, go ahead, give in to temptation. God knows how hard it is. That's not what I'm saying. We want to strive and we have this innate desire within us if we are Christians to be righteous, <coughs> but we know we're going to fall. Doesn't mean we don't try, but we know we're going to fall. And what John says is, I'm writing these things to you because I want to encourage you, pursue to be like Christ. Try everything you can, but when you sin, don't worry. You have a sympathetic high priest 
who's right there to advocate for you. Do you think you're too dirty for Jesus? Do you think you're too far gone for Jesus? Matter of fact, the scripture even said, all have sinned, although not like the first sin, which, by the way, was the worst sin in the, in the course of human history. Did you know that? That's what the scripture says. All have sinned, but not like the first Adam. If Adam was not too far gone, and Adam, right after he sinned, what does he get from God in Genesis 3.15? A promise of redemption. If you think you're too far gone, if you think you're too dirty, what about Adam? You think your past is too much for Jesus to overcome to get you connected to Heavenly Dad? Guys, listen, every failure you've ever had, Jesus knows exactly how tough it was. In fact, he knows exactly how and why you got tricked. He knows how and why you fell. He knows why the temptation worked and why it worked specifically in your circumstance. So that's not like just a, a compassion that's overwhelming. Oh, yeah, it's tough for them. No, it's overwhelming like this. I know exactly why Joe fell yesterday at 215. I saw it coming, and I know exactly why he was weak. I know exactly why Joe wasn't able to resist that temptation on Thursday. I know why Joe needs grace and mercy, because I saw that coming. I knew that temptation was going to attack him right at his weakest part in his character, right at the weakest part of his integrity. I knew he was going to be overwhelmed by it. But I love him so much, and I know his pain. <coughs> you know what's amazing about it? You don't even have to come to God. God, listen, I want to ask for forgiveness for that. Let me tell you what happened. I was going here. I was sitting there. He doesn't care about the explanation. God, I'm really sorry that I gave in to this because, no, God, I'm a sinner. He doesn't need explanation. You know why? He already knows. He went through it himself. He experienced that temptation he experienced that process that you're going through. The scripture says he was tempted in every way that man has been tempted. I mean, that must have been our miserable 33 years. Huh? Do you think Satan stopped trying to tempt him at the wilderness? You think he tried to tempt him before the wilderness? It was a constant barrage 24-7. If you are one of his called, he is moved with compassion for you. It is this knowledge that served as part of the willingness to die for our failures in the wilderness of life. If Christ lives within us, we should have this insatiable thirst to be like him. So our life, you understand that, is marked with seasons of thriving and seasons of failing but because of his own experience, he knows how hard it is, how much the deck is stacked against us, and he translates that knowledge into overwhelming compassion, overwhelming mercy, and overwhelming grace. Jesus, thank you for going through the wilderness so you know how bad we suck. 
Thank you for going through the wilderness so you know how tough it is for me to follow you, Lord Jesus. I want to. I want to so bad. And I know that you know I want to, but you also know how hard it is for me to do it some days. Especially when i got to deal with some of you people. Just kidding. Sort of. But you know what? Jesus knows how hard it is for you, seriously, to deal with me. He knows how hard it is for you to deal with the world out there. He knows. He understands. He doesn't need an explanation. Just go to him as your advocate. Because when you fall, he's there and saying, I know, I know, bring it to me. I know, bring it to me. It's all right.